Well, thank you, Carson and Aaron and team. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Hey, morning. Hey, grab your Bibles and turn to Philippians 3, if you will. Philippians 3 is where uh, we're going to be this morning. We're going to jump right in uh, to our text today. Um, look, we've, we've been here for several weeks walking through the book of Philippians in a series entitled Gospel Humility. Um, humility is one of the deep things that's going to emerge in, in, quite frankly, I think every block of text, every series of texts that we've looked at, there's, there's this deep intentionality by Paul to write to this group of believers at Philippi, this little area that's kind of in so many ways like a little Rome. And one of the deep ways that he's encouraging these folks who are faithful believers, who are are people that are walking with Jesus, the thing that he wants to speak into them, he wants to help them understand is that the life of the gospel is one that's to be lived in humility. And it truly is the very gospel of Jesus Christ, the the good news of his death and his resurrection that informs and creates and, quite frankly, empowers our ability to have this deep freedom where our identity solely rests in Christ, so much so that we can be humble and we can live these lives that in so many ways are, are, are a stark difference from the world that we exist in, the world in which We're called to be somebody, to make something of ourselves. And the whole thrust of Philippians has really moved to this place where, at this point, those hearing this letter, these Christians can understand and see what Christ has done for them in such a way that they have freedom to exist in a world where they don't have to carve out, they don't have to make an identity for themselves in this Roman world. Instead, they can trust in Christ for who they are. We're going to walk through verses 12 through 21 today and look at the gospel humility that's found in perseverance. The gospel humility that is found in the life of Christian perseverance. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 12, and it says this. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is in their belly and their glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. When I read this passage, one of the things that that really stands out is all of this powerful language about pressing on. 
and, and straining and trying to persevere and be steadfast and move forward. Paul's going to use that language again and again. I, I press on, forgetting what lies behind me. I strain ahead. I press on this language of action. Quite frankly, that requires, I think, to a large degree, motivation. I wonder if I was to ask you, and not just in a corporate setting, because you don't want to shout it out here, I'm sure. But if I, if I was sitting with you, having coffee with you, or we're just talking together. And I said, what's your motivation? I think we'd, we'd have a ton of different answers. Like a ton of different ways to answer that question. Because I think a lot of us truly are seeking motivation constantly. We're seeking motivation constantly. Some of us might even listen to you know, a Tony Robbins Right or, or, or someone that can really try to help us get to a place where we understand how to be more than what we are or to move beyond where we've been. Maybe it's somebody more contemporary. Maybe it's like a Simon Sinek or someone like this. These people that have these incredible ideas and distill them into these very powerful phrases. These small, succinct thoughts that you read and it just kind of really makes you think and say, man, I want to have that life. I want to live in that way. I want to be more than what I am. I want to be further along than where I am. Some of us, look, I think we, we might have encountered this in our career or perhaps even our personal life. Some of us make a, a vision board or like a dream board where we'll like create and construct and place images on it that, that really motivate us, that inspire us. For some of us, that might be our family. For some of us, it might be that, that home that you're trying to buy or that, that next car you're trying to get or whatever it is it might be it might be relational it might be materialistic but we want things to motivate us we want things to help us move from where we are forward and look there's no shortage of inspirational quotes i think you and i probably more than we realize are looking for inspiration how can today be a better day, be a more powerful day, be a more passionate day? What's going to like really light that fire in me to live? We do it in a ton of ways and look for that personally and, 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 and just things that we need from a consumer or material standpoint. We do it relationally as well. But I wonder spiritually, and I mean this very seriously, spiritually, where does our motivation come from? And I'm not just talking about the motivation to wake up this morning and, and get ready for church. I'm talking about the motivation to trust in Christ daily. The motivation to love that person that we know has not acted lovingly toward us. The motivation to not just look a certain way or do certain things, but to really live out our faith. Where does that motivation come from? How does it play out in our life spiritually? Not just with our visions and our goals and our dreams and the little things that we want to build our life around, but what about what our life is in in Christ? Where does our motivation come from? This language that Paul uses, this pressing on, this striving, is not unlike other scriptures that we find throughout the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 you look at that, that hall of faith in chapter 11, it's like, therefore, because we're surrounded by these witnesses, we press on, right? 
The language in Galatians chapter 6 would tell us, don't give up, don't grow weary in doing good. James would say it this way, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because it produces steadfastness. It produces perseverance. This language is throughout the New Testament, and God longs for us to be a people that presses on. A people that perseveres in faith. What does that look like? How do we really do that? Today in this passage of scripture, we're going to see this very early on. That the gospel is the motivator for all of your life. For all of your life. For all of my life. The gospel is the motivator. It's the thing that will wake us up. It's the thing that will keep us going. It's the thing that will truly sustain us. The reality of the gospel. We're also going to see how Christian maturity in this passage describes something that's vastly different than what the world calls mature. Very, very different. Paul's going to see maturity in a, in a totally antithetical, backwards way than the way the world works. We're also going to see how we live out the gospel when we watch other people before us, when we observe others, and finally we get to see the hope of the future. Look back into verse 12 and look at the beginning of the passage and what Paul says. He says this, not that I've already obtained this or I'm perfect, but I press on to make it my own. So what is Paul seeking to obtain? If you go back into that passage we read last week and look down into verse 10, you see that the thing that Paul longs for, the, things that, he, the thing that he desires so deeply is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. To the point that he said, I want to share in sufferings and become like him in his death. Ultimately, Paul is saying, I want to know and experience Christ. This is the thing that I long to attain. This is the thing that I'm pressing on into Constantly, because if you remember back in the way this whole letter to these Christians is constructed, the, the thing that happens at the end of chapter one, he offers this incredible phrase. He says, I urge you, he longs for his people, these brothers and sisters in the faith. He says, this is what you're called to do. Everything from the end of chapter one builds from this, this phrase, this statement to live life. And he says it in this way, not just to live life. He says, only live life in a manner worthy of the gospel. So this is the thing. This is the thesis statement. This is the only thing. It is to live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. What does that look like? What does it look like to live in that way? It looks like this. It looks like pressing on into the one thing that matters above all things, and it's Christ. Paul says he presses on to know Christ more deeply, even in the face of adversity. But not just that. In this passage, one of the most incredible things is that Paul recognizes his brokenness and his needs. Paul says to these believers to press on because he knows he has to say it. Because he knows there are times when they want to quit. Like just stop. Just give up. And quit living this life that looks culturally different than everything else we know around us. That would prohibit us from things that the world would say free us. The Lord says, no, those things enslave you. Don't trust in those things. Sometimes it's challenging. It's hard to bear. 
to live the Christian life. And Paul says, I know you want to give up. He recognizes that or else he wouldn't have to tell them to press on. But why does he press on? What is the motivation? How do you get to be someone that in the face of not just adversity, but imprisonment and being beaten and shipwrecked and everything that would happen in Paul's life? How do you live that life and tell people to press on? What's the motivation? Here's the motivation. It's his belief in the gospel. The motivation for Paul is this, that Christ has made us. Christ has made us his own. Look back into that verse in verse 12. Paul says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Here's the wild thing about motivation and the thing that I think we do as people. We're constantly striving. We're constantly placing energy toward taking the next step, toward getting better, toward moving ahead, toward going to the next place. And this is the wildest thing in the world. But this is what relationship with God is like. We press on because he's done it all for us. This is the beauty of the gospel. Paul didn't say, I press on so that Christ will make me his own. I press on so that that, that people will see and will recognize and hopefully people will understand that I've lived a life of morality and purity. And if if I do all those things and the world could recognize it and also maybe, God, you'll recognize it too. If I do all these things, maybe you'll make me your own. That is not what the scriptures say. Think about the beauty and the power and the paradoxical reality of the gospel. This is not I get to go to God. It's he comes to me. Look at the beauty of this. I press on. The motivation is not so that I can get there. I recognize my brokenness. I see that I'm going to fail. Instead, the thing that drives me, the thing that wakes me up in the morning, the thing that sustains me is the recognition truly that it is Christ that has made me his own. What's Paul saying? He's saying the gospel is the motivator for all of our life. The life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this good news, that gospel, changes everything. It transforms us so much so that now I have the freedom not to rely on the things that are mine, my own attempts at righteousness, my own attempts at good works, my own attempts at pleasing the Lord. No, I'm I'm trusting all, all of those things I've entrusted into Christ's righteousness. It's what Christ has done. This is what Paul says. The reason he can press on is because Christ has made him his own. Here's where you and I struggle, I think. We want to please the Lord. I'm sitting in a room full of incredible people who love the Lord and they want to please the Lord. But you've got to understand this is why... Constantly, we seek to preach that belief in the gospel is not merely for a moment in the past. It's for every moment. It's for every day. It's for all time. It's in every moment I have the opportunity to truly trust in Christ's righteousness and not my own. And this is why Paul gave that resume in the last, in the last passage Where he says, look, I've done all these things. If anybody has reason to boast, if anybody has reason to brag, I've lived a life that is way more righteous than everybody else. He says so. 
He tells these believers this. And they know it because they know him. And yet he still says, the goal of life is to trust in what Christ has done. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Union with Christ is what's going to motivate us. Far be it from us to, to trust a life of good works that we muster up on our own. Instead, let's recognize what Christ has done for us. When we recognize how deeply God has loved us, that we're chosen, that we're forsaken, that we don't have to name ourselves anymore, that we are who he says we are. Now I'm living in a world where I'm resting in, I'm trusting in, I'm believing in the gospel. And my identity is secure. The gospel is the motivator for our life. Not mastering tasks, not getting better. It's what Christ has done that motivates us to move on. Look at verses 13 and 14. Paul says, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. So there's more of this pressing on language, and there's this prize language. We've talked about in several verses that have, that have preceded this in other chapters, one of the things that Paul's doing in some of his letters is he's using this very athletic language. He's using language to an audience of Greco-Roman people that would understand competition. Particularly in that Olympian-type world, which finds its origin in this society, in this time, in this place. He's saying, look, our faith is such that we run like that. We strive like that. Paul says he presses on toward the goal for this prize. Here's the thing. When this pressing on language that's here, the word truly means one of a couple of things. It kind of gives the connotation, the idea of a predator pursuing prey. Of a predator pursuing prey. So it's this really strong language of relentless pursuit. Not pursuit to just get a thing, but because there is a desire that has to be satiated. There's something that has to be accomplished that won't let one stop. That's the kind of language Paul uses when he's describing this. He's also using, in a different way, this athletic language of striving so much so that these people that he's speaking to, this church at Philippi, they would understand that he's talking about these athletes that are laying it all on the line. They're laying it all on. Have you ever had like a race with somebody and it was like, you know, more than 40 yards? And so you do this thing where you start really fast and then you're kind of loaf for a while. But then when you see the finish line, you speed up, right? And then not only you, but the people around you are like, where was that guy like for the middle portion of this, right? Where, where, where did all this energy come from? When we see the goal, when we see the finish, we're always deeply motivated to give everything we have, to lay it on the line, to press towards that. And this is what Paul is saying. He's also saying something really profound about the Christian life that I think we often really, really struggle with. He describes it as forward-looking. So much so that he's going to use this language that says, forget the past. Forget what lies behind me. I'm resting so securely in the truth of the gospel and what Christ has done that I can only look forward to what's to come. It's a present, it's a forward-looking faith where he's not dwelling quite truly on even his failures and even past sins and the recognition of his brokenness. He's aware, but he doesn't dwell on it in such a way that it would prohibit him from pursuing the prize of knowing Christ, 
of being with Christ, of fully being mature and complete in Him. And then look in verse 15. Paul describes maturity. And this is incredibly profound. And he also helps people realize in a very aggressive way that maturity is not quite what we think it is. Look at verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. So what is maturity? This is what Paul is saying. Maturity is not, and look at me and hear me and know this, maturity is not age. It's not the most scriptural knowledge. It's not a particular spiritual gift above any others. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with people recognizing a person's place of tenure over a long period of time. When, when Paul says mature, this is not what he means. Here's what he means. He means someone who's humble. Someone who is humble. Where do we get that from? How can we understand maturity is humility? Because you would think that the person who is most mature is the person who has the least to be humble about. The person who has it all together. The person that is not just organized ducks in a row, but the person who has accomplishments and things they've done and things they've been a part of and name recognition and, and respect and perhaps even authority. That's not how maturity works in God's economy. Look at this. Maturity is humility. Paul makes it clear that the mark of Christian maturity is not moving beyond the gospel. It's not going to something else, okay, I got it. I was a sinner. Christ died for me. Now what? That sounds really trite, but you think that. And so do I. It is a deep, deep challenge for us to continually recognize our need for a Savior. Daily. This is that First Corinthians language that Paul would use in chapter 15, right? We looked at it a few weeks ago in reference to working out one salvation. Paul describes it as that we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. We've got to be dependent on the gospel. And that brings us to, it should bring us to, this deep place of humility. You know who the mature Christian is? You know who the Christian is who is the most mature? It's the one who's most humble. It's the one whose life reflects their awareness of their need for Christ. Not that they've achieved things. Not that they've moved to this special place. But the true recognition is that all of life is bound up in this. That Christ has made us his own. Not I made, I, not, not I made myself one with Christ. But Christ has empowered has executed union with God for me. He's done it. While I was a sinner, Christ died for me. It's this humble understanding. And so when Paul uses that language, make it my own, here's what he means. He's, he longs to fully take hold of all that Christ has done. That all that Christ has done would characterize him fully. That it, it would so be his own, it would so characterize him, that he would be seen as one who trusts Fully in Christ. And there are those of us at, at times 
And then there are people, period, that would think that maturity is not this way. Because look at what Paul says. And this is really aggressive. He says, let those of us who are mature think in this way. So the call is for all of us as believers, those who are faithfully following Jesus, like this church at Philippi, these people, the call is to us to be mature. And that maturity comes through the recognition of our brokenness, dependence, and continual belief in the gospel that produces a humility in us for all that Christ has done for us. This is what Paul says. He says, if any of you think otherwise, if you think it's a different way, if you think maturity is something else, God will tell you you're wrong. Truly. Look at what it says. He says, if you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. This is, true. This is some pride comes before a fall language that Paul's employing. He's saying, if you don't think that this is so, watch and find out. And recognize that the mature one is the one who is humble, who yields all of him or herself to Christ. And that last line of verse 16 only let us hold true to what we have attained is what Paul is saying. He's doing it tongue in cheek and he's saying it in two ways. Only hold true to what we have attained. So keep in mind what we've been a part of. But then he's also using language that in so many ways is kind of mocking us, kind of making fun of what we've attained. Because what have we attained? Nothing. What do I bring to the table? Nothing. What has Christ done for us? Everything. Nothing that we have has happened to us apart from Christ. And look, that, that maturity is different than what the world would tell you. The world would tell you that you need to be a person of stature, that you need to be a person who is respected for, for perhaps morals, but more than likely for whatever, uh, whatever recognition that you've acquired that the world has given to you, that, it, that, it's your, that it's your status, that it's your bank account, that it's the, the type of property that you own or the type of club that you belong to, that these things would show or reflect someone who is the mature person, someone who is, in, in many ways, in the Roman world, cultured. Paul says, no. Gospel says that the mature one is the humble one. And Paul says this this is how we can live out the gospel by observing others in the faith, by observing their humility. This gospel humility. Look at verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So there's several things happening here. One, when he uses brothers, this is family language. This is truly an intimate way of saying, hear me, listen to me, know this is true, and not just know it because it's factual, but know it because I deeply love you, and I'm connected to you truly in a family way. This is the truth. Join in imitating me. Now, that's bold language. Do what I do. Do the things that I do. Paul is saying this, and he's inviting us into something really, really specific. Because I've always had a, I mean, personally, I've always been really challenged by just the matter of factness with which Paul can say these things. Hey, just live your life like me. Do what I do. What I do. That sounds like someone, quite frankly, who's arrogant. 
quite frankly, who's not what this says and has it all together. But this is why we read scripture in context, because now we understand and we see what Paul is inviting these believers into. This is the invitation that he gives. This is the instruction that he gives. And quite frankly, it's the imperative. It's the command that he gives. He says, join in imitating me. This is what he's saying, imitate. Imitate my humility. Now we're not arrogant anymore. Paul's saying the thing, that you should in, the thing that you should imitate, the thing that you should follow, the thing that you should look to not only myself but other believers and, and, and so much so in so many ways, like live out the way they do, do these things, not because we're perfect and we got it all together, but follow us, follow me as I live in humility. It's a beautiful invitation. It's a recognition of his name. He's inviting them into something very specific, and it's humility. And then you can see the pain that Paul experiences as he's walked with these people. And he really now gets into the nitty-gritty in these next couple verses about what living out the gospel looks like and why humility is so paramount. Because if we want to be humble, it starts with the cross. It starts with the recognition of what God has done. Look at verse 18. For many of whom I've told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now I want you to think about those words. Enemies of the cross of Christ. The language is so powerful that when I say those words, when I think those words, the kind of stuff that comes to mind is people who are, I mean, just truly pagan on, on every level. Committing dark, horrible, heinous sins. Things that would cause all of us for our stomach to turn and for us to say, this is, this is awful. These people are enemies of the cross. They stand against everything that God has done. Paul uses this language to help us understand the most heinous thing is this. It's those who find righteousness in their works rather than the cross of Christ. This is the heinous sin. To say, I don't need that cross. To find the cross so offensive that one can't yield itself to it. Because we've got to recognize this. The cross is offensive. The cross causes us to step into and awaken to the reality that you and I cannot get to God on our own. That we are broken, selfish, rebellious people apart from Jesus. That's, that's, that's who we were. And Paul says, there are these people that are out here and they're enemies of the cross of Christ. And that sounds militant and it sounds horrible. And Paul says, yeah, if you're a person who says, I'm just going to do good works, I'm going to do these things. That's horrible. It's heinous and there is no life found in that. It's the person 
that says, I don't, I, I don't need the cross. The offense of the cross is this. We need a Savior. We need a Savior. And Paul's also doing this in this moment, too. We, we talked last week in that passage very specifically about how there is this group of people who, who, who society and, who, and, and Paul in so many ways would call Judaizers, people that would say that you've got to do these things in order to be in the faith. Trust in Jesus, but you've got to keep these dietary laws. You must be circumcised. These things are required to either give you salvation or for you to maintain it. You've got to do this stuff. And Paul says that the people who are saying this, the people who are espousing that obedience to the law is a requirement for salvation or to maintain it, those people are enemies of the cross. They're in opposition to the finished work of what Christ has done. The motivation to keep the law, the motivation to follow and trust in the teaching that God offers us, is not a salvation that we go get on our own. Instead, it's one where we recognize that Christ has done this for us. That grace will motivate us. It will change us. It will transform us when we stand in its awe. And then he describes, he moves toward the destination of two types of people. The first is those who truly are enemies of the cross. And this is what verse 19 says. Their end is destruction. Their God is in their belly and their glory and their shame with their minds set on earthly things. So Paul's talking about, in so many ways, a destination. He's used this language of pressing on. He's used this language of striving, of laying it all in the line, of all of these types of things. And he says there's a goal, there is an end. But for those who have not trusted in Christ, for those who don't follow Jesus, who don't understand and believe in the gospel, this is their end. It's destruction. There is no prize. He says their God is in their belly. And this is what he means by this, that they're hedonistic people. They're only seeking to satisfy their very next hunger. Whatever they crave next, that's just what they're after in a continual way that yields no lasting and true satisfaction. He says their glory is in their shame. They're glorying in These temporary moments that elevate themselves and not the God who truly holds all things together. And finally, their minds are set on earthly things. This is the wildest thing spiritually, I think, about our world. And it is only by God's grace that he's opened up our eyes to see this, right? But Paul uses this language in, in Colossians of... Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your mind on things above. Setting our mind on things that are beyond the tangible things that we can see. Setting our mind on the very promises, the realization of the promises of God. Why in the world are we looking for that which is beyond? We're only looking down. We're only looking around us here in a temporary way at one another. Why are we not looking... At heavenly things instead of earthly things. 
Paul's also talking to, to two specific groups of people. In that manner, he's talking to the Gentiles. In another way, he's talking about the things that these Judaizers were bringing on the church. And the protection against, he's railing against with this language, this idea that if I obey and I do these things, that's what it means to be in Christ. That's what it means to be a part of the faith. When he says their God is in their belly, he's directly saying, hey, your God is in your belly if you're obeying dietary laws and you think that is what maintains your salvation. It's not those works that allow God to delight in you. He's saying that their glory is in their shame. And quite frankly, this is a reference to, in so many ways, circumcision. He's saying that you're glorying in in a part of us that is quite shameful, right? That That we don't demonstrate, that we don't reveal. He's saying you're glorying in that. That's where your glory is. These are earthly things. Don't do that. Look beyond, and in verse 20, we get teaching about how to have the confident hope in our future. Look at what it says. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is really, really helpful language because throughout Philippians, he's writing to a people whose sole identity in so many ways, at least culturally, not this group of believers, but culturally, they're going to be tempted to fall into what the culture says, which is that your identity as a citizen of Rome, the world power, this empire, this 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 government, this structure, this is where your identity is found. This is where your identity is found. And Paul uses this word citizenship to convey a couple of things because that word citizenship that he uses, it means a commonwealth under governmental authority. So when these believers hear these words, when they hear citizenship, they cannot but think of Rome. They're thinking of the world in which they live, and the power that truly governs them. And this is what he's saying, that there's a better citizenship than the one they possess. That our citizenship is in heaven. That there is no government, there is no authority, there is no power, there is no providence or colony or state or or nation or anything that compares With the life that's to come and the fact that we belong to not these earthly places, but a heavenly one. So there's a hope to come. And here's the second thing. Paul knew that citizenship in the Roman world informed a person's ethics. So being a Roman citizen, you did certain things. You acted certain ways in a way that you related to others. But it also informed your allegiance. We think the 4th of July is nuts, right? You think Memorial Day is crazy, right? Man, this group of people, this nation, empire, all it, everything pales in so many ways historically to the pride of Rome, to the power of Rome. People were loyal. Their allegiance was to this. And Paul's saying, don't you understand, as a Christian, this country, heaven, the place where God is, this is going to inform the way that you live. 
and your loyalty and allegiance, not this temporary place on earth. And then look at the goal. Our citizenship is in heaven. And then Paul, in very specific language, says what the point of heaven is. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's certainty here. And the goal, the prize, is Christ himself. To go from a place where we saw dimly in a mirror to go to a place where we see face to face. The one who redeems us, the one who loves us. And look at verse 21. And this is what Christ will do. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So why trust in, why rest in, why give in to the life of the flesh? The life that says, I need to make much of myself, and I'm going to make this place my citizenship, and I'm going to focus my whole life on all the things that are around me, and I'm going to acquire as much as I can, and I'm going to hoard as much as I can, and I'm going to keep as much as I can, and I want all the notoriety and all the affection and all the power and all the influence, and I want all of these things. I want these earthly things. Why in the world would we rest in that rather than resting in the one who has the power to subject all things to himself the one who has created everything the one who truly does as that passage in Colossians says holds all things together and then look to the life the transformation that comes as we obediently press on when we press on in the faith when we persevere there's an end and there's a beautiful benefit of this Our lowly bodies transforms to be like his. Look at the power that he has. This is our hope. This is our motivation. It is not, I want to do better. I want to get better. I want to just stop doing this thing. And I want to start doing this thing. In this passage, in so many ways, it's easy for us to see the recognition of Romans 7. I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I do want to do. Otherwise, if, we, if, if Paul had attained it, he wouldn't have to say that he hasn't. He wouldn't have to encourage others to do it. He recognizes his brokenness, and yet this is what he says. Let's press on. Let's continually do this because the hope that we have is this. The motivation that we have is this. That when I was a sinner, Christ died for me. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And in this passage, there's a real hearkening to Philippians 1.6. Paul says this at the very beginning of this letter that he writes to these believers. So he's told them the end at the beginning. I'm not good at movies. Like I, I watch movies. And I just, I just not, I'm not a good plot guy. I don't know if I just I focus on the character more or what. But you know the movies that like start with the end and then it's like the middle and then it's back to the end or the beginning and the end again. I don't, don't do that. Let's just, let's just tell the story, all right? Let's, like, I don't know, let's start at the front. That'd be great, right? But Paul does this in a really purposeful way in Philippians 1.6, and this is what he says. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ, Jesus Christ. This is the motivation for us to live out the gospel, to persevere and persevere Not with pride in what we're doing, but persevere with humility that we can't do anything, but that Christ has done everything. He's going to bring it to completion. This is why Paul can say, stand firm. 
You're not standing firm in just what's going to be. You're standing firm in what's already been done, and we can see that with certainty. Are we humble, people? That's the motivation for today, is, is to walk out of this place and say, I can do nothing. Nothing apart from what Christ has done. Could we let that sit into our hearts this week and be awakened to this reality? Let this humble you. God, in all your mercy, let this humble me. Truly, I mean this. The only way we can make this Christian life our own, the only way we can persevere, the only way we can take hold of this is to recognize that Christ has made us his own. That's it. That's the gospel. So in a way, this is what Paul is saying. Here's the secret to pressing on. Give up. Just give up. Give up trying to live this life on your own and rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let the gospel motivate us to persevere. Because everything has been done for us in Christ. If you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father, would you seat these words into our heart? Would you challenge us to persevere to love our neighbor? To persevere to care for those around us. To pray for those in need. Father, to persevere in waking up and spending time with you in the scriptures before we go dive into that busy day we have ahead of us. And God, would the motivation for our perseverance be not that we want to impress others or ourselves, not that we want to strive and work out of our own righteousness, but instead because we trust in the righteousness of your son, Jesus. God, for all of us, for my brothers and sisters here, for me, Father, would you make the gospel the motivation of our striving? Because now we have freedom to strive in you, to live life out of what you've done for us in Jesus. So, Father, this is our, this is our prayer and this is our plea. God, give us the humble life of perseverance and daily awaken our hearts to believe in the gospel that we were once dead but now have been made alive through your son, Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. I'd encourage you today. Um, look, I mean, truly right now, even in my head, I'm just thinking about, man, ways, practical ways I can, I can, seek to look not only to my own interests, but the interests of others, to love my family and to love my neighbors and to care for those around me. This morning as we sing and as we respond, man, think about ways that you can persevere and continue to trust in the gospel and, and find ways to love others. Practical ways to help you awaken every day the reality that life is not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ. And let's just take some real inventory with ourselves. Am I humble? And is the gospel what's motivating me to live?
sit, stand, pray, think. Uh, but I encourage you in this moment to, to speak with the Lord uh, and to allow this song to minister to you. Uh, if you'd love to pray, if you'd love to talk, if you'd love to believe or trust in Christ, uh, please know, know that we're here uh, and, you're, and you're welcome to come. I'd love to receive you. So let's worship together now.